0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to She Said, She Said's second groovy show focusing on the psychedelic Beatles, those Paisley and Bellbottom studio musicians of autumn 1966 through 1970. It was the age of self-discovery in which Timothy Leary urged us to tune in, turn on, and drop out. The hippies reminded us to make love, not war, but nonetheless, the war in Vietnam was still raging on while waves of student protests swept across the rest of college campuses of America. The Young Bloods begged us to come on, people now, shine on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another right now. And the Beatles, well, they penned All You Need Is Love and created a company designed to inspire and to help struggling musicians find their voice and their place in the world. And today, we'll take you there. I'm Lena Stagg, the culinary chef, the author of the Recipe Record Series of Rock and Roll Cookbooks, full of interesting historical info, delicious recipes, rock and roll trivia, and facts, and even great playlists to spin on your newfangled Alexa or other listening device as you cook. And if it's the late 60s and those dream-colored days that you love, let me tell you, all of my books have recipes straight from that magical era. For example, in Recipe Records, the 60s edition, you can whip up a stone soul picnic. And in my Recipe Records tribute to the Beatles, you can experiment with Mundo Paparazzi Ziti. You'll think you are right back in 1968 when you make the Helter Skelter Skillet, a fun recipe from the original Recipe Records book. And for you Stones fans, you can get your groove on with a heaping serving of delicious She's a Rainbow salad from my book, The Rolling Scones Let's in the bite together. Check out all of these delicious and easy to make recipes and the stories behind them at lenastag.com.
1: Yep, I know I have. In fact, all I have to say around my house is it's Recipe Records Night, and my husband is smiling from ear to ear. And We're not kidding you guys. This is an experience that you don't want to miss because you're not only going to get these great recipes, but the stories behind them, the stories about the music and the musicians, music history, music trivia, you will absolutely love them. And I am Lena's co-host. Jude Sutherland-Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. And Lena and our guest today and I are all here really celebrating and kicking up our heels because mm-hmm. the three of us have been working very, very hard on volume five in the John Lennon series, Shades of Life, part one. And it was just submitted actually for the second time. We did. We had to um, look at the PDF over the weekend, find any errors from the publisher that were present in the PDF, and we just redid it and sent it back in this morning. So it is still in the process of coming off the press, and. The people that are with me today did a ton, and I mean a ton of work, to get this very lengthy and in-depth book about John's life. And, of course, if it's John's life, it's also The Beatles' lives in 1965 ready to roll out. And, I mean, we truly finish with only minutes to spare. But it will be out on 9 October 2021, and we are all really glad to have it submitted and in the hands of the printers. Now, if you want to pre-order the book and get a signed and dated copy, go to johnlinnenseries.com, and you can place your order. Um, I was going to do 200 signed and numbered books, but there were a lot of people that did not get a chance to get a copy. So we've extended that to 250. We have about 30 copies left of the signed, numbered and dated books, but you're going to love it. The lads uh, make help. They go on that big European tour of Italy, France and Spain. They very reluctantly in John's case, accept the Queen's MBE nomination and John publishes the Spaniard in the works and really reacts in a very wounded way, although he doesn't make it really publicly known, but he's very hurt by the solo release of Paul's first ever solo Beatles song, Yesterday. And it it really is a very complicated story because it's tied into the release of Help and how John wanted to release Help but didn't get to. So there are lots of fun stories in there to share, but today... Today, our focus, as Lena says, is squarely on 67, 68, 69, and 70, because John, Paul, George, and Ringo, who were always looking for the next big thing, ventured into a business together, into the music industry, with really high and lofty ideas about helping new songwriters and singers and artists get a foothold in an industry that was not only complicated, but could often be really clickish and hard to break into. Well, in order to do this, they created, as most of you know, Apple. And here to help us understand, what the Beatles wanted to achieve with Apple and how they went about it and whom they selected to help make this really beautiful dream into reality is one of our dear friends who is one of the most respected historians in the Beatles world. He's the executive editor of a magazine that the New York Times called Power Beatling beatle fan magazine he's also the author of changing times 101 days that shaped a generation great book about the advent of the beatles and were the beatles really Um, popular only because of the death of President John F. Kennedy and other, clears up lots of myths like that. He also is a contributing author to four books by Bruce Beiser, The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective, The Beatles' White Album and The Launch of Apple, which is a great one for today, The Beatles' Get Back to Abbey Road, and The Beatles' Finally Let It Be. So I ask you, who would know more about those hectic, hectic crazy days of Apple, then our esteemed guest, Mr. Al Sussman. Al, welcome to She Said, She Said.
2: Ladies, how are you today? Good, good. We
0: are so terrific.
2: Great. (laughs) How are you? Good, good. Um, You know, sort of (laughs) baking in the middle of another, uh, another Pittsburgh heat wave. But uh, you know, it's it's almost the middle of August, so pretty soon we'll be getting to uh, we'll be getting to the fall.
1: Yes, yeah. Right. Elena is not looking forward to that. I can tell you.
2: Well, yeah, no, yeah, that's not. true. Because we know what's, we know we know what comes after that. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> that is so right. So it's so wonderful to have you here, Al, and and also just to to back up. Everything that Jude said, we really appreciate you helping edit her latest wizardry into the life of John Lennon. It is a spectacular book, and I can't Mm. wait for everyone to read it and smile as as I did every time I had the great opportunity to read it. It was um, just like like being a fly on the wall with
2: with
0: John and his mates. It's delightful.
2: it was my pleasure to uh, to help out and and also to uh, to read us. Well, thank you. Know, you. I Alice. love you
1: guys. I really appreciate it. It was a bunch of hard work. I'll tell you that.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I'm not sure.
1: You did a lot, a lot of work. I just pulled your folder out of the desk. Alan looked at it, and Elaine, I have hundreds of Marcos. We went back and forth, and Janet Davis. I think I had I'm going to say five hundred pages of edits. So, oh, thank goodness for you guys. Thank goodness, really and mm-hmm. truly.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're wonderful. most welcome.
0: Wonderful. Well, Al, Jude, Jude yes. and I know the basic ABCs of Apple, but you are so well-versed in the details and the nitty-gritty of how it all came to pass and swing in London during the late 60s. So, Jude and I are going to do a lot of listening and learning today as you unveil the intricate world of Apple for us. So first things first, what was the origin of what became Apple and um, how did how did it
2: all it all come to be? Well, actually, it's too bad that we don't have our, our buddy Bruce Pfizer here because Bruce is a in his, in his real life is a uh, is a tax attorney. And he could uh, fill us in on the kind of the intricacies of this because because Apple basically began as a tax shelter.
1: Huh.
2: Uh, it uh, it grew out of the of uh, the need for the Beatles to to invest a certain amount of their money or lose it in taxes. And and Jude, you know the tax structure in England certainly in that in that era. Carmel. Um Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> So they originally, so Beatles Limited was, in effect, a the, their original tax shelter. But in April of 67, that partnership became Beatles and Company. Each Beatle owned 5% of Beatles and Company, and the remaining 80% would go to a new corporation, which would be taxed at a much lower tax rate. Hmm. So that's the... Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that that's the kind of the genesis, the 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 immediate genesis of Apple. Wow. That's a
0: necessity and now that happens mm-hmm. all the time for yes. um for business people. So, mm-hmm. we know that Brian Epstein had for some time been struggling with his role within the Beatles' world and I mm-hmm. guess it really all started in August of 1966 when the boys at the conclusion of the North American tour um, said they were going to halt live performances. In fact, George Harrison famously said at the end of the candlestick concert, that's it. I'm not a Beatle anymore. So, which, you know, everybody says things, but, but Brian really felt at loose ends about his role in the lives of his four boys. So tell us what was Brian's role in the early direction Of
2: this new venture called eventually called Apple he Brian was actually very uh, very gung-ho about Apple at the very beginning because he 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 looked at it as a you know a new enterprise as a a marketing opportunity perhaps and this is interesting this comes from our old our old friend Alistair Taylor um, thinking that it this new opportunity could could come through a a chain of stores. Now, obviously, you know, with Brian's background, since his family had, uh, you know, founded the uh, the Nem stores on Merseyside, mm-hmm. that kind of makes sense. And in fact, he even thought of it possibly as a chain of of card stores, according to uh, to Alistair. And um, there's a uh, there's a, a a wonderful book that came out actually a few years ago and has just recently been been updated called Those Were the Days by a fellow named Stefan Granados and that that book contends that um, that actually Paul McCartney wanted the new venture to be a music publishing company which <laughs> is which is even more interesting when you consider Paul's you know later involvement with with music publishing and and uh, Paul also came up with with the name Apple for uh, for the new company, uh, kind of as a result of his involvement with kind of the art scene in London, things like that. Uh, and in fact, the the Apple was thanked on the back cover of Sgt Pepper. So Brian actually was you know was all was quite gung ho about the the possibilities for Apple. But it was you know it was after after Brian's death in august of sixty seven that the Beatles became more involved with uh, the entity that was that was becoming that was becoming known as Apple rather right. than the Beatles and company
0: right well it was it was a huge there was a huge amount of money that was needing to be managed and mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, they were young <laughs> and they were you know had this big weight on their shoulders but um mm-hmm. as, as you said as you mentioned brian tragically died on august 27th, 1967 to an mm-hmm. accidental drug overdose and with his death everything and i mean everything changed for the Beatles, even bringing about a shift in group leadership but for our purposes today as we focus mm-hmm. primarily on apple Tell us how did Brian's death change the corporate structure at Apple and what was the relationship between Brian's NEMS Corporation, the, the group had once managed the affairs of the Beatles and the embryonic Apple Corps.
2: Well, that was a problem because the Beatles actually were they were fine with the with the 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 concept of of Apple of uh, excuse me, of NEMS Actually, still keeping track of the day-to-day activities of the group, but but Clive Epstein made it pretty pretty clear early on that he really had no appetite for any kind of involvement with trying to manage uh, the Beatles, and uh, you know, or you know, or be in any kind of a kind of a management position with NEMS. In fact, Ringo has talked about, about, about Clive being actually very kind of looking down quite a bit on the Beatles okay. and wow. considering them much more, yeah, much more common than, uh, than they actually were. So, so Clive wanted basically no part of them. But then there was Robert Stigwood. That's the other problem. Okay. Stig, Stigwood had been taken on by, uh, by Brian as a partner in NEMS early in 67. Uh, and in fact, he brought Cream and the Bee Gees to, uh, to NEMS. But but he really had his sight set on the Beatles. And so, and really even before Brian died, the Beatles had pretty much told him they wanted no part of Stigwood. Yeah. And that that if Stigwood, if Stigwood tried to, you know, kind of usurp brian's uh, brian's position and become a manager and become their manager that they would basically do nothing but release fart noises and and um, denunciations of the queen and whatever else instead of instead of music until until he finally quit so so they wanted no part of, of robert stigwood so that meant that they basically you know, were kind of managing themselves, which is, which turned out to be, turned out to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, they decided to leave them behind and get fully behind Apple. And in fact, Magical Mystery Tour was the first public Apple project.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. And we know how that went.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to me, that every time that the Beatles are left to their own devices, you know, okay, you have they go to Hamburg and Alan Williams is managing them, and they learn mm-hmm. to mock Shao and they're they're making advances, and then Alan sort of pulls away when they won't pay his ten percent that second time, and mm-hmm. Mona is hit a, hit or miss, and they start to kind of stumble. Fortunately, along comes Brian, and then as long right. as Brian's there they're good to go. And then when mm-hmm. Brian's not there, you know, here they are, they're they're stunned, they're shocked, they're putting one foot in front of the other. And I think Apple kind of was helping to take their mind off of this unbelievable loss. I don't think anybody was prepared for Brian no. just suddenly, you know, not being there. But someone mm-hmm. did You know, at that juncture, two of the Beatles' most trusted longtime associates really stepped up to the plate To fill that huge gap that was caused by Brian's tragic death. And one of them became the general manager of Apple while the other one became the managing director. So Al, tell us a little bit about each one of those really special guys.
2: Well, the, well, the, the managing director. Was yeah. actually an, an old well. Actually, the managing director and the general manager were each uh, right. old hands with uh, right. as part of the the inner circle. And right. the, the, man, the managing director was Neil Aspinall, who had of been course. who had been their, their road manager going all the way back to all the way back to Liverpool. Yep. As as a matter of fact, and so he yeah he was was named as managing director of Apple. And he held that position uh, and really was kind of like the, the, the keeper of, of the flame, the, the guardian, whatever label you want to put on him. He held that position until his retirement in 2007, wow. which unfortunately was less than a year before before his death. Wow. wow. That's a long yeah.
1: time. I think about him making posters when he lived uh, at Mona Best's house as a student mm-hmm. and he was making the very first posters that said the fabulous Beatles and mm-hmm. you know we kind of credit him with being the one that came up with the fab four because he the fabulous Beatles and there he is all the way through to you know to his retirement.
2: Yeah. In fact it's 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 revealing that in the in the Beatles anthology, other than the Beatles themselves and George Martin, the only other person who is, you know, an on-screen talking head is Neil Aspinall. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That that shows you what what kind of what kind of position he had and the respect that he had from the Beatles. But yeah. uh, but un- unfortunately, Neil was wasn't much more of a business person than you know than the Beatles were. Yeah. Which was. Part of the problem, but you mentioned the uh, the general manager, yeah, and that and that was uh, another old hand as part of, you know part of the uh, the inner circle, and that is again just mentioned it before our old friend alistair Taylor, who uh, of course was almost a regular at the fest for many years until uh, until his passing, but he became uh, general manager as you mentioned at the behest of John Lennon. And in um, the early early part of 1968, he would appear in the famous This Man Has Talent, one-man band ad, uh, ad that appeared in New Musical Express and also in Rolling Stone, kind of soliciting new talent for Apple, <laughs> none of which would ever uh, actually uh, pan out for Apple.
0: Yeah.
1: But those were two great people who had been there all along and, Of course, you know, you have the other regulars who are still there. Um, We spoke with Leslie Cavendish a couple of months ago, and Mm -hmm. he talked about his time at Apple and the fact that they even set him up with his own salon. And then, you know, he was there. And then, of course, Mal, you you, you certainly cannot have anything without Mal around. So I think they all had to step up to fill the very big shoes that were left by Brian. Just so Mm -hmm. sad, you know, so sad. Well, I just finished sort of rereading The Longest Cocktail Party by Richard Delillo, and it is such an interesting book. In fact, I was surprised to find that the foreword was written by our very good friend, Wally Pedrezic, who knows more about the Beatles than, I mean, the man is a walking Beatles encyclopedia. But Mm -hmm. there's so many things in there that we could discuss, like the house hippie, and the the days of Francine yeah. Schwartz and the Apple scruffs mm-hmm. and the Boutique all right. and all of that. I mean, we could have lots of shows about Apple, lengthy discussions. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of people listening who not, might not really be ingrained in all the particulars of Apple, kind of break it down for us. What were the divisions of Apple and what happened to each one of those?
2: Well, the first division that actually kind of came to fruition, if you want to put it that way, what is uh, is Apple Music Publishing, because that in uh, September of sixty-seven, uh, an office for Apple Music Publishing opened at ninety-four Baker Street in London, headed by Terry Doran, who would be the the head of Apple Publishing for its first couple of years. Probably the first major signing for Apple Publishing, was actually a um, songwriter named George Alexander. <laughs> and his writing partner and all morphed into a group that was, that was actually dubbed Grapefruit by John Lennon. <laughs> right. And uh, also there was also Jackie Lomax uh-huh. was another, another artist or another writer. That was signed to Apple Music Publishing. Well, Jackie, of course, was an old, an old friend of the Beatles from their uh, from their days in Liverpool and when he was uh, with a group called the Undertakers. Yeah. There was a group called Focal Point that was actually named by Brian Epstein, huh? Sorry. Which you know shows you that he certainly, at least early on, he certainly was. Very much in favor of the whole Apple project, and there was the, the songwriting team of Gallagher and Lyle, who some people may remember more from a group called an early seventies group in in England called McGinnis Flint, and also Mary Hopkin recorded some of their songs on her her second apple album right and it's interesting i have I have a birthday coming up, and our our buddy Tom Frangione, from, you know, from The Fest and The Beatles Channel sent me this. It's actually a five-disc set called Good as Gold, Artifacts of the Apple Era, uh, 1967 to 1975. There's nothing on here. Well, no, actually there is one, one song that is actually an Apple Records release. But everything else on here are either demos or recordings that were made for Apple Publishing or were made at the at the the Apple Studios once they were able to reopen that in 1971 after all the damage that the the infamous Magic Alex did yeah. but I'm getting but I'm getting way ahead of myself here <laughs> but anyway Apple Publishing was probably okay. the first the first kind of effective Division. Then you've got the, the other public, the other divisions were a mixed bag. There was Apple Tailoring, which basically nothing came out of Apple uh, Apple Tailoring. Right. There was Apple Electronics, which was the playpen of Yanni Alexis uh-huh. it Came who came up with numerous concepts, none of which uh-huh. amounted to anything, including. <laughs> including the original concept for the Apple Recording Studio in which the, uh, the Beatles recorded most of what became the Let It Be album only after they had to borrow equipment from EMI's uh. Abbey Road Studio yeah. to, to undo the mess created by Magic Alex. But he's a genius, so, Al. He's a genius. Right? Uh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you get, the wrecking um, ball. You should, yeah, really. You should get Alan Kozen on here to talk about Magic Alex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll you'll mm-hmm. get you'll get an earful. Uh-huh. Then there was a, then there was Apple Films, which actually was the only other really successful uh, division of Apple. Apple Films was the imprint for Magical Mystery Tour, for Yellow Submarine, for Let It Be, for the concert for Bangladesh, uh, the Ravi Shankar documentary raga the mark bolan t-rex documentary born to boogie that was directed sort of directed by ringo son of dracula with ringo and harry Nilsson, and little malcolm which was produced by george harrison and then distributed by apple films then (laughs) another one apple there was apple retail yeah which was uh, chiefly the uh, basically the Apple boutique, it was downstairs at uh, 94 Baker Street, down below Apple Publishing, and was run by the Fool with uh, Peter with Pete John John's you know childhood friend as uh, as manager, and it was about as successful as Apple Electronics. You know the the famous psychedelic mural. Uh, painted on the side of the building, had to be had to be whitewashed because of neighborhood protests. The uh-huh. store never made any money because of uh, customer and staff theft, and the uh, the boutique closed on July 31st, 1968, with everything being given away for free. But only after huh. the Beatles and their you know wives and girlfriends took their share the night before the closing. Huh. And, then there was Apple publicity, which was uh, helmed by Derek Taylor, and mainly was just to issue press releases regarding uh, the Beatles and Apple Records artists. Although there were certain times when he, when Derek was pretty much uh, besieged by the media, especially April tenth, nineteen seventy. When yeah. the you know the the news of Paul's not announcement the you know the the the, the Q and A that had been packaged with the the press copies of of the McCartney album, but the the real success story for Apple was was Apple Records, right? Which um, you know it not only did it serve as the you know the imprint for for the Beatles releases from August of '68 actually <laughs> technically right up to the present day yeah because everything that's you know that's currently released on on by the beatles is on is still on on the apple label yeah. but also it, it, but also it the apple records i mean note for note it's probably the the level of quality was probably about almost as good as almost any kind of a regular record label you know a, a uh, on the on the Columbia RCA level, right, or or even Atlantic, but some of the more you know Electra, lab, Warner's, Reprise labels of that of that type, because uh, you have you have James Taylor, you have uh, Mary Hopkin, you have obviously Badfinger, which was the, the the one really successful group, and so much more actually, you know between. The, the end of August of 68, when the first four releases came out, and basically the end of 1973. They released, you know, not only the recordings by the Beatles as a group and in their solo career, but also a lot of great, a lot of great material. Right, right. You know, you said, <clears throat> am I hearing you
1: right when you said Apple tailoring was one of the departments? Yes. Well, <clears throat> it seems like the, uh, that would have... Fallen under the auspices of the uh, retail, or somehow those two could have overlapped. Don't you, you know what uh, I'm saying?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm just scrolling back here. Apple. Um, yeah, this was when, this is in February. Yeah, of '68. Apple registered its hope for divisions: Apple Electronics, Apple Films Limited. Apple management didn't even talk about Apple management Apple music publishing Apple overseas uh
1: uh-huh.
2: oh wow uh, Apple yeah Apple publicity Apple records Apple retail Apple tailoring
1: uh
2: huh so yeah uh huh
1: So Apple Overseas is where Ken Mansfield comes into the picture
2: because he's the
1: head of the United States uh, division of Apple. Very, very, very interesting. Well, so now Mm -hmm. we're going to put you on the spot because Mm -hmm. if we gave you a magic wand and said, all right, Al, go back and you can change three things about Apple to make it really as successful as Apple Records – and to mm-hmm. maximize its impact on the world of the late nineteen sixties sixties, what three things would you do?
2: Well, the first the first one is really tough because it's it, you know it's one that really is <laughs> you you don't have a you know a, a really tangible solution for and that is that after Brian died they needed to have a music oriented but business oriented business head, if you want to call it that, right. businessman, man, you know, somebody who would be actually, you know, probably the, uh, uh, probably the best person that could have, that, that might've fit into a position like that, except that he was probably too young at that moment in time was David Geffen, because this was mm-hmm. still about five years before he, uh, before he formed Asylum. He was mm-hmm. still kind of a neophyte in the business but the problem was that there 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 just were not that many kind of honest, you know, music oriented and business oriented people. You know, yeah. there were you know, there were there were the sharks like like Alan Klein. Yeah. And, and then Stigwood. there were mm-hmm. and Stigwood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 so ironic that a decade after he tried to um take over the Beatles that he ended up making this disastrous film that did yeah. that did did great harm to the careers of of the Bee Gees and peter frampton really but right. you know but the, but like you know somebody like andrew Loog goldham or say kit lambert and chris stamp with the who were really more production oriented even though they were technically right. managers and so, so it's so so it's very tough to think of somebody other than somebody like a david geffen who could yeah. have kind of really directed the, the the you know the apple the apple ship of state? The second one is that in that in that period especially, the Beatles tended to treat everything like they would they would get very excited over you know something here and there like remember the the greek island that they oh, bought yeah. in in 67 and i think they went there once yeah. and never and never went back yeah and it was that way yeah it was that that, that was it was that way with almost everything Well, that's uh, alex and, martis
1: too same thing you know i mean yeah exactly. he's going to make the best studio ever he has a perpetual motion machine he you yeah. know it's same, same you know I, we're in this today 100% 200% were out.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly,
2: you know, and uh, it was if 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 whatever they were they were into wasn't an immediate success, they would just you know, they would just dump it. And yeah. that's and that was uh, that was a problem because they they really never you know, even with the production work at Apple uh, if something didn't um, didn't turn out to be all that successful, they just moved on to the next thing, and and unfortunately, a lot of a lot of deserving artists and also people in their lives, people like Mal Evans, yeah. got, mm-hmm. you know, got swept out to sea, yeah, basically. So it would so if if the Beatles had had basically been more dedicated to to these projects. And stayed with them. I think yeah. that would have that would have been you know a big plus. And and kind of connected to that would be the third one. And that is that the, that yes that people like Matt Levins and and a group like Badfinger, if they had really paid more attention to what was what was happening with them, especially Badfinger, because you know they because with they were still connected with Apple. While they were being ripped off and manipulated by uh, Stan Polly, who deserves uh, deserves a a prominent place in hell, you know. And I, I think that if that if since the group was still, first of all, they shouldn't have let the situation get to the point where Badfinger left at the end of '73. They should have done their best to keep keep Badfinger on the label. And then they should have also been paying attention to what was going on with the group because it's, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that, you know, that if more honest heads prevailed, Pete Ham and Tommy Evans might still be alive today. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so I think if, think of if, if the Beatles had, had kind of paid more attention to, to things like that, uh, you know, he, obviously toward the, you know, the latter part of the Apple era, they simply, you know, they got bored with, you know, with the label and, and just basically, you know, let other people handle it and really just had their, you know, their, rec- their solo records yeah. issued on Apple and didn't really care about, you know, I mean, the, 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 I guess the, the starkest example of that is the the label of george harrison's extra texture album where the label shows a chewed up apple and mm. that was of course the last album release yeah. on that on apple and the uh single of this guitar can't uh can't um, keep from crying was the last uh apple single at least mm. of the the original apple era yeah Yeah, Yeah. it
1: kind of reminds me of, did you happen, I don't know if you happened to see Lena's presentation at Monmouth on the Beatles were the first millennials, but so many of the characteristics that she was pointing out of millennials, the Beatles really had decades earlier, and one of them, you know, Lena, isn't it disability to inability to stay on one thing, you know, to the desire to move on to something else and to have now mm-hmm. kind of
0: results. Right. Yeah. You know, it's I, I think it's a, a very common, we hear it all the time in the music world, there's, there's a lack of immaturity, there's a lack of importance placed on keeping your business together, generally with a lot of artistic people. And mm-hmm. I, I I think that's you know a big difference and and the Beatles were so young and yeah. they weren't mm-hmm. raised knowing business like you like you say if Brian had still been living there wouldn't right. have been any problem you know mm-hmm. it would have been um, you know Brian may have made some missteps here and there but things would have been. Um, foundationally wise set out for success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um I don't I, I think that's just so common. I can't even imagine today you don't hear about it much. But um you know, artists today, you know, they don't have records at the store getting getting bought by girls and the teen magazines, um, you know, posters on the wall. You know, everything's just on their phone. And yeah. and kids are paying five dollars a month to Spotify to mm-hmm. to hear every song in the world. And I, I, I it scares me to think what an artist actually gets these days. They they can't be making anywhere near what artists made twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Um and
2: well especially you know, maybe especially, there's, yeah, especially given what given the last year and a half. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Some some when so many oh, of absolutely. them haven't been able haven't been able to perform at all. Yeah.
0: yeah absolutely yeah. and and you know it it pains me to to see these kids with their Spotify and I'm like you know it but it, you know how difficult it is to buy a song now or mm-hmm. it it takes a it's it's a little bit of work. I tried to buy a, a track the other day and you know, it, it took me a while <laughs> to actually buy it. Was it, it. You "Love Me"? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sadly, it wasn't. <laughs> That's my but, new favorite um, song. Out. <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome song. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, sadly, those those guys, you know, they they had other interests. They were into they were very much sidetracked by their personal lives and their personal yes. demons mm-hmm. and 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 we've all been there we've all been you know I'm um, there right now I'm so i'm i'm so overwhelmed with what i have on my plate you guys just mm-hmm. take it on and yes. um i trust you and unfortunately i know they had put trust in people that that did not have their best interests At hand, and that is very, very common today too, and it's it's Mm -hmm. common for authors as well.
2: (laughs) Yes, it certainly is.
0: But not me with my editors, best editors in the whole wide world, and that's the truth. (laughs) Uh, Well, Al, we so appreciate your insight into the inner workings of this multi layered company that the Beatles entered into with their hopes of making the world a better place and the hopes of making dreams come true for singers, bands, songwriters, and performers all over the globe. As we all prepare to watch Peter Jackson's docu-series, The Beatles Get Back in November, what you've shared with Mm -hmm. us, what you shared is an amazing backdrop to help us understand the interpersonal relationships we'll be encountering as we look back over the closing years of the Beatles. 60 years later, <laughs> thank mm-hmm. you so much, Al, for laying the foundation for us all and taking your time and answering all our questions and emails and texts. So we so appreciate you.
2: You're most welcome. It was uh, Apple, especially, is a, a pet subject of mine. So it was. Uh, so this was. This was a lot of fun. So I just I, I, loved
1: it. I I didn't I, know an eighth of this. You are, and you know it. It's just rolling off your tongue. I mean, you know it. This is. I really, really appreciate it
2: so much. Oh, you're most welcome. It was. Uh, it was my pleasure. And thank you and for thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it very thank much.
0: Thank you, Al. It's so good to talk to you. Hope to see you one of these days. Yeah, one <laughs> of these, yeah. Um,
2: maybe next spring. We'll see. Yes, yes. We're praying. Hope. We're praying. Yeah. Keep your fingers crossed. All right.
0: Okay, our deep dive into the world of the psychedelic Beatles continues over the next few months. Up next, we'll be talking with Dr. Robert Hieronymus and Laura Courtner about their new book, it's All in the Mind, Inside the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, Volume 2. And drumroll, please, mark your calendars for <laughs> the, the annual Best of Show in November as we look over 2021 and herald the very best Beatles book releases of the year. We already have six great Beatle authors and experts lined up to share their stories their books and their secrets with you. So several of them will be giving you a sneak peek of new books slated for 2022. This will be an exciting interactive show that you do not want to miss. In fact, we're going to make it a Zoom event so that you can ask questions of our panel of authors and get the inside scoop on the Fab Four. That's all coming up on November 9th, 2021. The day, actually, that Brian Epstein discovered the Beatles in the Cavern Club in 1961. And more importantly, the day after my birthday and four days Uh after Jude's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll really be in celebration mode. (laughs) Get ready to have fab fun and chat with some of the best authors in the Beatles world more details in the months to come. Thank you for following us on our She Said, She Said Facebook page and Instagram. And finally, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Shades of Life Part 1 at Series.com And check out my recipe records, rock and roll cookbooks at linastag.com. Until next time, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll.
1: Draw and shine on.